This is the iMarket Podcast, brought to you by the Marketing Society of Kenya, EABL, and Capital FM. My guest today is media guru, Lenny Nganga. Lenny has been in the advertising industry for 26 years, initially specializing in media planning and buying, and he has now broadened his expertise to include communication strategy, marketing technology, and data analytics for marketing. Lenny's career started off with a four-year stint at Ogilvy & Mather, where he worked his way up from media executive to media manager. He then moved on to McCann Erickson to head up media operations for a key client across 39 African countries. And whilst there, he was instrumental in launching East Africa's first media independent agency, Universal McCann. In 2002, he launched Saracen Media, a full-service media agency, which is celebrating its 18th year of operation, having grown to be the second largest agency group in East Africa. Lenny is currently the East Africa CEO of the Omnicon Media Group, which includes Saracen PhD in East Africa, of which EABL and Diageo has contracted as its agency of record for media. In this episode, we talk about the shifting media landscape, the role of data in media planning, influencer marketing, media performance, and more. Lenny, the grandfather of media in Kenya and East Africa, as I call him, also shares his experience working with Diageo and EABL and why ROI is a key passion of his. Welcome. Welcome, Lenny, to the first podcast from the Marketing Society of Kenya. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much, Waithera. It's a privilege to be here and to be part of this first foray into the podcast. Yeah. So we have a lot to talk about. Lenny, you have so much experience in media. In fact, I want to call you the grandfather of media in Kenya. Is that okay? (laughs) (laughs) You don't look like a grandfather. And I know you're not one, but um, your experience over the years, you know, back, uh, you know, 20 or so odd years ago has been uh, really the foundation for how we do media in this country. Lenny, do you remember the first day you walked into Ogilvy and Martha? You know, that was your first job, right? Do yes, you remember what that day was like? <laughs> Very <laughs> clearly, actually. I remember it, it, was, a f- it was February 1994. Ni- did you say 1994? Yes, okay. I did. Okay, all right. <laughs> and the first thing that struck me when I got off the lift, and this was at uh, the building on Kijabi Street on the eighth floor. When I got off the lift and turned into the reception, the first thing that struck me was how red it was. <laughs> it was a red carpet. There was a lot of red on the walls. There was a red logo. Ah. And then I was asked to sit on a couch. And I sat next to this young man there, very thin guy with a very long foot, who later be- became my business partner. His name is Sami Thu. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you described Sami Thu. <laughs> uh-huh. So actually, we were actually both there for interviews. Okay. And we actually got hired on the same day. Yeah. So people who interviewed me on that day, actually, some pretty notable people. People like Betty Radia, who's now the chief executive of... Um, Kenya, Kenya Tourism Board, yeah. Yes. She was one of the people who interviewed me. And then that time, the, the MD was called Simon Ball yeah. as well. So, yeah, went through quite a rigorous round of interviews before we got hired. And you were hired as a media manager? A media planner. A media planner. Yes. Okay. And I'll be honest with you, I had no idea what that meant when I walked into that job. My first job was actually in a travel agency. And when a friend of mine came and told me there's a company called Ogilvy interviewing for a media planner, and I asked, what's the salary? And it was triple what I was earning. Wow. It was not much, but it was 15,000 bob. I was earning 5,000. And wow. I said, whatever it is, I'll do it. You literally tripled yourself <laughs> like that. That's how you got into media. <laughs> yes. Fantastic story. And fast forward today, you know, you're the CEO of uh, Saracen in the region, Saracen PhD, 
which is 19 years old today. This is fantastic. And just for full disclosure, um, Saracen is part of the Omnicom Media Group, which is the agency partner for Diageo Globally. And PhD, your local agency, is the agency on record for EABL in the region. So I know you very well. Diageo knows you and your uh, global affiliate very well. What would you say the journey was like to get to this point now where you are as, you know, Saracen, PhD, and part of Omni, Omnicom? It's been, I would say, an interesting and eventful journey. There's been some highs and some lows. And of course, at the beginning, it was really tough. Remember, there's one time when we had started off the business and about three months into our start, there's a day we actually went and asked the guys of the, well, at that time they were called Kenya Posts and Telecommunications, come and check our phones to see if they're working because <laughs> the phone had not rung. <laughs> A whole month and not rang. Uh, I don't want to laugh, but <laughs> <laughs> let me guess the bills had not been paid. Oh, we had paid the bills, it was just no one was calling, <laughs> even worse. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. so it was quite a shocker. <laughs> I mean, we've been used to a very busy life, right? When we were all actually, all of us were at McCann Erickson before we left. So suddenly, <laughs> nothing is happening. When did the phone start ringing? What did you do to get the phones to start ringing? We had to go out and do a lot, a lot of pitching, a lot mm-hmm. of cold pitching. And at the time as well, a lot of people thought we were not normal because we've gone out and we're saying we are a media agency. And mm-hmm. at the time, almost all agencies were full service. So, so explain full service. Full service means that you have your creative, you mm-hmm. have your client service, and then you have your media. Yeah. We were media only. So we'd also do our own client service or account servicing. Okay. So it was quite tough at first to convince clients to actually separate those roles. But we had seen that you didn't have to have all the services under one roof because you could actually pick and choose the best. So you could choose the best creative and then choose the best media. Mm. And that's the proposition we were giving our clients. Were you the first local media agency? Yes, we were. Okay. Yeah. So they're thinking, who are these local guys? What are they doing? And you're doing cold calls. Yes. Cold pitches. Cold pitches, yeah. So obviously a lot of rejection. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you how how did you handle that in terms from a, even from a mental health point of view? You're getting doors shut on you. <laughs> 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 We're laughing now, but oh my gosh, I'm sure it was quite something. It was quite it was quite traumatic. I would say in the beginning because as I said, I've come from an agency where I was actually the MD of the Universal McCann, which was the media arm of of McCann Erickson, and all doors were basically open. Then right. suddenly now, and I remember there's one media owner who told me, um, you see. I know you personally as Lenny, but my business does not know Saracen. Whoa, wow. Okay. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> just tough. But, but how was the media landscape then? How many TV stations were there, radio stations? I mean, now it's, you know, it's just proliferated and it's such an abundance of media to choose from. Yeah, at the time it was quite simple, I would say. When I started off in advertising, that was around the 1994, thereabouts, there were only two TV stations. And radio stations were three, okay. I would say, of note and two FM stations. So that was Capital was one of them. Yeah, Capital is uh, 25 years old now. Yeah, yeah, Capital was one of them. And then Metro FM, KBC. Those Metro are the only FM, two FM yeah. stations in the country. Yeah. To fast forward to today, where we have over 296 radio stations. Yeah, imagine that. So it was a lot simpler then. So you put in your ads or your messages on a couple of stations, and you probably got 80, 90% of the radio listenership. So would you say that um, for consumers, um, it really helped, uh, or for brands, really helped to build memory structures because there was no so much, um, you know, there's there's fewer media you're consuming. So you're, 
you know, top of mind awareness maybe is sharper. You know, are there those, you know, media that you'd say people always remembered this ad because, you know, the the frequency was higher. They're not being bombarded with a lot of advertising. Yes, I would say that is one factor. The other factor I would say and something that I've seen sadly which is declining is a, a respect of the craft of creating ads. Right. And I've had this mantra repeated quite often. I don't want brilliant. I want an okay ad, but I want it quick. Yeah. Because uh, like I remember I was part of the working on the account on the Barclays account when they did that famous dancing robot. Right. From the briefing to the actual ad being produced, it actually took about three months for that to happen. In today's world, I don't see there being the kind of patience to have three that kind of incubation. Three months is even fast. Yeah. Three months is quite fast. And I know, um, you know, we work on campaigns at EABL that take 12 months or 18 months. Yeah. So three months was fast. Um what would you say, you know, has changed now that, you know, you, you did media, you were a media planner, media strategist, when there was just traditional media. What has changed now with digital media? Oh, so much. And what I love about it is we have to look at it from the consumer's point of view, yeah, the customer's point of view. To them, they don't differentiate as say, between the different mediums. So it's for us to understand how they're using these and how they're crossing over from each medium to another or consuming them concurrently. Yeah. So you'll find like, for example, like say, like TV is being consumed together with online platforms. Yeah. So people are watching TV and doing something else or either related to what they're watching or totally unrelated as well. Or they're watching TV and tweeting about the show. Yes. At the, simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, so what does, it, what does that say about the way we create for the, these different mediums? We have to create looking at it as being a seamless communication pattern across all platforms. So yeah. don't create different messages for different platforms. So yeah. if you're going to show up, whether it's going to be on Instagram or how you're going to show up on radio, have the same character, have the same messaging going out. Yeah. Of course, respecting the platform and why the customer is going to that particular platform. So the formats are important. Very important. So yeah. I shouldn't take my 30-second TV ad and put it on Facebook. Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> why no. not? Tell, tell us why. <laughs> <laughs> because as you know, you know, Facebook, like the first couple of seconds, it's running without sound. Yeah. So if you don't captivate me in that, whereas on your TV ad, you might have this beautiful song that is accompanying a sunrise. Yeah. Someone scrolling down through their Facebook feed and they're looking at it and just seeing a sun rising doesn't catch their attention. Yeah. So at EABL, we have, you know, one of our media, the ways we do media is what we call connections-led creative, where we first start with a connections plan and then brief in the creative uh, that will now fill in that plan. And we say a connection point is any point where you can, you know, touch a consumer. It could be a billboard, it could be a, you know, a wallpaper, it, whatever it is. Do you see that as best practice? Do you see other uh, brands doing connections like creative? Is that how we should be going? Or should we still be thinking about let's do the creative and then look at what is available and, and push the creative there? I think this direction is the right way to go. I'm not saying that just because I'm a media planner, <laughs> <laughs> which obviously I love it. Yeah. But it's because as media planners, where we start from is understanding how your audience is actually consuming these mediums and why yeah. they're consuming these mediums. Then if you look at it and understand and how we want to connect with them and what we want to send across or the marketing message you want to pass, then you're able to better able to customize the creative to fit that rather than the other way around. And we've seen a lot of one of the cardinal scenes that really gets my goat is people putting press ads on billboards yeah that really so tell us why that is a bad thing wow on average 
a person looking at a billboard unless you're stuck in some really serious traffic but on average most people look at a billboard for 5 to 8 seconds 5 to 8 seconds yes okay so if you don't communicate within that period of time people are going to read all the text that's on a billboard so less text less text great visuals mm-hmm. and a very catchy headline that communicates very quickly yeah mm-hmm. yeah speaking of billboards which is one billboard or one campaign that you think has stuck over the years or or became part of the culture <laughs> i would have to say you know a place called gidurai kimbo i'll say yes <laughs> okay it's a place in gidurai but it's it gets its name actually from a billboard that was there for so many years and those days you couldn't change billboards very often they used to be some of them used to be hand painted onto metal what yeah so <laughs> Uh-huh. So the billboard was there for so long that it became a matter to stop called Kimbo. So that's why it became called Because the billboard was for Kimbo. Kimbo the cooking oil. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so that's why the place got called Gidurai Kimbo. Is it still called that till today? Till today. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So just going back to the the practice of media um when you're hiring a, you know, a media planner or a media buyer, what do you look for in them? Is are these skill sets that people learn in school or do they learn on the job? What is you know the key skills that you're looking for? Actually nowadays I hire a lot more for attitude. I like that. So attitude not aptitude. Not aptitude can be a knowledge those those can be acquired. Attitude is very hard to change. So what is the attitude you're going after? <laughs> I look for people especially with curiosity. Uh-huh. People who are very curious, who always want to find out the why. Yes. I also look for people who have I would say kind of settled. What do you mean by that? As in people who I would say would be very steady emotionally because this job is very demanding. It is. Yeah, and day by day, I mean there's as I said there's highs and there's lows and you'll keep on taking body blows. So if you're not resilient emotionally as well, you'll not last too long. And especially now we saw quite a bit of that with last year with the pandemic, quite a number of people who were not too resilient emotionally actually suffered quite a lot. So those are the kind of things that I look for. As I said the, the attitude is the most important part of it. The rest we can teach. And uh, when you talk about resilience, is it resilience in the nature of of the work? Is it resilience in the relationships you have to have with your clients? You know, is it resilience in the media landscape all is, you know, changing? What what is it that that you find a challenge? Inner resilience. Yeah. inner resilience that's the ability to handle tough situations okay and also the ability to handle really good situations and keeping a level head when all this is going on so let's talk a bit about the client agency relationship i don't i hope it won't make you uncomfortable because i am <laughs> your client <laughs> but i want you to be just very open and honest and you know you can use me as the guinea pig or any 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 other client you don't have to name them Let's talk about in I don't want to talk about the past. I want to talk about in this present day and age that we live in. People working from different places, uh people having to uh brands having to really uh be very uh, agile about the way they do their media, the the landscape, the environment is constantly changing. What makes a great relationship with your client? What should the client be doing or not doing for it to make it work for them you know there's this saying that that says clients get the work that they d- they deserve yeah so what what does it take thank you that's a very 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 good question because it's something that i've seen i would say deteriorating over the over the years and in this 
day and age, especially now in the digital era, where I said a lot of work is urgent. Yeah. It's like posts have to go up tomorrow yeah. and so on. Everything is urgent. What happens is a lot of the craft and the thinking and what the value that the agency people will be able to add is lost. So the one thing I would say, one key thing that would really help in agency-client relationships is establishing good timelines for work to get done. Yes, we do understand that things have to move fast, but at some point, we find that there's too many demands for too many things happening too quickly. And that actually ends up stretching. The agency and what agencies tend to fall into is a pattern of, okay, we'll give the client what they want. Not what we believe we can do that will add value to the brands. So let's talk a bit about that. So obviously, we're talking about the briefing process. Uh, Agencies brief, they're told we need this ASAP. Um, Not enough time to really, you know, put your all into what you're you're developing or looking for the best solution because it's such a short turnaround time. Now, it shouldn't be the norm. I think, you know, from my experience is, especially at EABL, we we plan, you know, way in advance. So, you know, we're going to start our planning for next year in a few months time yeah and next year starts in july so we start planning ahead but it seems like they need there's a disconnect when it comes to briefing agencies and I'm, I'm not sure what it is but there's also other times when we need to address something very quickly yeah so it was not anticipated there's something in the market that has happened and it's an overnight brief so again there the expectation is you know our agency needs to help us will work with us to turn it around almost immediately so i think that there are those two different scenarios and i agree with you ample time is needed for responding to briefs that you know planned projects um, versus things that come up overnight but with that said i think a lot of times agencies also find themselves in these situations because they don't push back so a culture you know, comes where the client says, I need this in next week. So it, it's delivered next week. So me as a client, I know I, I can brief these guys and they'll deliver in a week's time. But if there's pushback saying, no, 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 this is not our ways of working. For us to really deliver good quality work to you, it will take at least three weeks. Bye-bye client, go back. Why is it that we don't do that as, or the agency does not do enough of that? You know, the client is not a god. Mm-hmm. I'll say it's also because of conditioning. Too often, a lot of agency people, when they try and push back, they get into trouble. And this has unfortunately permeated the industry. As I said, when I started off, there was very clear ways in which the agency would add value and the relationship that would happen with the client. And it was a relationship of a lot of mutual respect. What I've seen is that that has been eroded quite a bit. And the agency, I'm not saying that this is uh, DIG by any means. And the agency usually see now as somebody to execute something that you want not a partner who's adding value. And therein lies the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So w- one of the things, you know, we did at ABL, f- because we jumped two feet into digital, uh, you know, three years ago uh, when I joined the company. And as you know, we have a huge portfolio of brands, you know, almost 20, 30 brands that we were activating on digital. And as you know, with digital, you know, there's planned content, but there's a lot of stuff you just need to be constantly watching or responding to online. And because of that, you know, sort of, need to be you know more agile around it we decided to in-house our digital creative side of it and not it wasn't bringing an agency in-house it was literally bringing a team into the to be part and parcel of the marketing team so the brand and marketing managers but they're just specialists in digital creative do you think that model is you know 
is something that we should be adopting in housing agencies into especially bigger corporate organizations that may have that you know tension between client agency relationships in housing works for as you said the larger corporations in some specialist areas but we don't want to in-house too much because what happens is you end up with a team that is very myopic that is focused on one area of business and one area alone where you're not seeing what else your customer is experiencing in other spheres because one of the greatest areas of value that agencies provide is giving you a view of other industries that they are also working on so that you actually have a, a more rounded view of the customer or right. the target audience. So yes, for something like say digital creative or even like now if it's going to be like say community management to some extent, yeah. especially yeah. where you have very clear and hard and fast rules about what you can and cannot say. Right. An agency can do that as well as you can. Right. So that I would say yes, that is a definite plus because you yeah. need to respond with speed, but you need to respond within some certain guidelines and brand yeah. rules or ways you need you have to yeah. make sure the brand is safe. Yeah. So that, that yeah, is you fine. really yeah outsourcing mm. your brand safety or your online reputation sometimes is not the best mm-hmm. uh, thing to do. You're right. Yeah, is media still a specialized capability, or should all marketers have that skill set at the very least? I would say all marketers should have at least an understanding of the media planning principles because the principles don't change. Okay, the platforms might change, but the principles don't change. It's going to be your reach. It's going to be your frequency. Doesn't change whether it's digital, whether it's uh, digi- whether it's billboards, whether it's radio. Principles remain the same. So let's talk about those media principles. What's important to grow a brand? What do you need to do from a media point of view? The first and most important factor is reach. Yeah. You have to keep reaching new customers or reinforcing your message against existing customers. So reach is the most important one. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's you know how brands grow is by attracting new buyers to the brand. All, t- all the time, or yeah. even if it's going to be a service. Yeah, mm-hmm. but one of my favorite books that I always recommend to new marketers is How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a fantastic it, book. Yeah. It is. Do you have another book that, you know, you would recommend to others or something you've read that's just impacted you? Oh, yes. Well, I'm, I'm quite a bit of a geek, and so I love a book called By Dotology. By Dotology. By okay. Martin Nilsson, where he went into, he did a $7 million experiment on using MRIs and brain scanners mm-hmm. and exposing people to ads to understand the neuroscience around ads and how they persuade and how they persuade people to buy. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some amazing findings. I mean, like one of the ones Name that one. really stood mm. out for me was mm-hmm. that when he did all these surveys, those graphic warnings on the top of cigarette packs, mm-hmm. you know, with even pictures of people with... Uh, Bad lungs. Yeah. <laughs> and ulcers and everything, <laughs> mouth ulcers, they actually trigger a desire to smoke in smokers. What? Yeah, he found that. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. Because as a smoker, every time you know you pick up your pack and that's an image you see, so the next time you see that image, you want to smoke. <laughs> oh my gosh. But it has some profound findings about the way we carry out our marketing and ways in which it's effective or ineffective. He also did another experiment mm-hmm. where he stitched together like many different car commercials. Mm-hmm. And you're saying like about 20 of these commercials had almost the exact same shot of the car going around a bend. Okay. And when you put them all together, he couldn't tell which car was which. Oh my gosh. So there's no differentiation. <laughs> the brand is not... Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So it was about how the mind perceives your marketing messages. And the other one that he found was between the, the Coke and Pepsi wars. Mm-hmm. 
where you know the, like, the famous taste test. Yes. Where almost everyone preferred Pepsi. Yes. Or rather more than half preferred Pepsi. But when he played the ads, it said another part of the brain uh-huh. was activated when they saw the Coke ads. When they were doing the taste test, it was a part of the brain that is mostly logical. Okay. Illogical. Which is logical. Oh, logical. Okay. Logical. Mm-hmm. But then he played the ads and played the Coke ads, the part of the brain that deals with emotion and impulse lit up. <laughs> so what Coke had done extremely successfully was imbue emotion into the brand that Pepsi had not been able to get. Right. So that's why despite the taste test. A lot of intrinsics, test, yeah, yeah. Despite the taste test, yeah. Coke was still way ahead. Yeah. Mm. So very interesting findings. Yeah, I think yeah. we'll we'll post a link to the book uh, in in the podcast. I think it's something I I want to read now. You've sparked my curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of you know different marketing campaigns, what would you say you've seen in the last twelve to eighteen months? You know this pandemic time that was you know a effective marketing campaign, not just clever, not just interesting, but effective either locally or globally. And I'll say this, and I'm not just be- I'm not being biased. Blockchain's brightest. Tell us Guinness. more about Black Shine's brightest. <laughs> I mean, like when I saw that tagline and I was like, this is amazing because yeah. it brings such a good feeling in, in a pretty dark and gloomy time and also a pretty tough time for us to be black people. And that affirmation and the feel-good factor that it brings is just amazing and just very well-timed and also very well-executed, if I might add. The creative was really good, showing different parts of Africa in one ad. I could see them. Yeah, that I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Black Shines Brightest is the new Guinness campaign. Mm-hmm. And, and the Out of Home is so spectacular. Yeah. Very, uh, just amazing. Okay. So what is the one thing the pandemic, you know, has taught you to do or not to do as a marketer? One thing it's taught me to do yeah, is to plan for Black Swan events. <laughs> I know. <Hey. laughs> but how do you plan for Black Swan events? I mean... We have now had some sessions... <laughs> Internally, where we say, okay, what's what's the wildest thing we can think of happening? <laughs> so you do have have had those like scenario planning and okay. Yeah, in fact, like when was it about a month ago? Was it three weeks ago when there was a, a tremor? Yes. So we went to the office and told guys, okay, now let's have a scenario <laughs> where there's an eruption, a volcanic eruption. Right. What happens? So is that those are the things that you have to start planning for. The other yeah. one that it's also taught me is we have to be a lot better at collecting data on our customers. Yes. Because our customers, especially with this pandemic, are evolving and changing at a rate that is unprecedented. And it's unfortunate that in Kenya and amongst the marketing community, there's scant scant respect for data. Yeah. Which is quite sad. Yeah. Especially looking at like now what happened with CAF, where now CAF um, lost a court case and so CAF basically ceased to exist because of that. But it's because not able to get traction in the market, people are not buying the research, or other people are just pirating the research. So data is important. I think even just if you look at what happened recently with the platforms, the major social media platforms uh, going down, and the fact that a lot of brands don't have, don't own first party data. So how do you reach your consumers if, you know, everything goes dark? But speaking of CAF, you were very involved in CAF some time back. Um, I think one of the times, first times I met you uh, here at Capital FM is you'd actually come to share with us um, some data that, um, some research that came out of CAF, some audience research data. And CAF has, you know, came under a lot of criticism in methodology. It's, you know, you have defended CAF uh, strongly. We know, you know, CAF, you know, like you said, is, is, you know, ceased to exist now, but what would you say or why should marketers trust data 
from you know when there's you know there are questions about how even that data was collected or not even collected the methodology behind it there's trust issues around the data already so how are you going to start using for planning what do we need to do around the way we collect data and the way we have you know a lot of discipline around it so it becomes that you know the value for it is you know is, is felt i would say first people have to or the community the marketing community in kenya has to decide that we do need great data and what we found is that there's a few organizations and these organizations tend to be the ones that excel in marketing are the ones that respect and use the data to, to good advantage a lot of other companies don't so even when calf was doing all the studies and all there was an oversight committee where even the msk was part of it so those the msk there was uh, at some point even we involved the media council the media owners association yeah the association of practitioners in advertising yeah so all of them were part of that oversight committee but unfortunately even when the methodology and all is sent out mm. for people to give comments on before the studies go to the field mm. you wouldn't you wouldn't get Nobody's too much feedback, feedback. Okay, okay. but when the data comes out everybody everybody's, criticizing. everybody's put on their boxing gloves <laughs> <laughs> to criticize we, we tend the to results. Do that as Kenyans. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we don't to get involved in the and give the input in the beginning but when the product comes out we're ready to criticize it. Yeah. yeah. And also the other thing that the other factor that contributed despite the fact that the MOA were on the oversight committee. Yeah. When the research and came MOA out And MOA is the Media Owners, owners Association. Association. Yes. Yeah. When the research came out mm. they would t- totally fall out. <laughs> so whoever is being shown favorably as saying that um the consumers are consuming more of this channel or that channel those ones would be like yes the research is good the ones who are showing that their ratings have dropped would be like no this research is not right so so where where what's next then for for Kenyans for us in Kenya in terms of if this oversight committee could not do the job could not bring all these different groups and stakeholders together what's next the, where we've gotten to now we've gotten to a level where and i think the governments are putting in place such a great constitution we are pressuring now the communications authority of kenya mm-hmm. to actually be the custodian of this data okay they collect the broadcast fees from all these broadcasters they can work now with the kenya national bureau of statistics to carry out this research so that all these arguments end yeah if it's being run by a government body who has had proper public participation on the methodology and the results then when it comes out then people will basically adhere to what the findings say So that's the direction I'm seeing that we'll have to go. Okay. Unfortunately, but as a private enterprise it, or quasi private it couldn't it just didn't work. Where do you consume your media, Lenny? Whoa. <laughs> it's <laughs> incredible. It's everywhere. That's how to say. It's everywhere. So where do you go for your news? Where do you go for your entertainment? Where do you go for your the media you need? For like news, that I would go online. Okay. I would go online, but when I get to my office as well, I have the newspapers. Okay. Because I well I get them. Okay. The physical copies which I know is very outmoded but I think <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah. But entertainment yes I would say that would be mostly online and because I have like a connected TV so yeah. actually able to access all these other services Netflix and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And then my phone of course now there's a lot of the the messaging and so on things like WhatsApp and so so it's I would say it's everywhere. So you're not you're not watching your news at 9 or 7 p.m. or 9 p.m. on your TV screen. Heavens no. Okay. Okay. No, that that took a <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> okay. And interesting about entertainment, there's a lot of local entertainment um also coming from content creators who we also call influencers. Mm-hmm. Um last year 
around this time, uh, we at ABL brought on board a lot of influencers to support us with our marketing. Content creators, you know, what we call broadcasters or amplifiers, really amazing Kenyans who are entering this space. Uh, one of the things we quickly realized, it's, um, it was really hard to measure their performance because, you know, this is a pay-for-performance, you know, job. We contract you, we brief you, we expect you to to deliver on the brief and we want to measure your performance also against um, other other media in the whole media mix. And I remember we came to your, or you actually you guys came to us and said, there's a way we can measure this using technology. And there's this tool uh, you introduced us to called Tagger, uh, which helps us, you know, measure inf- uh, what influencers are doing, what they're posting all in one place. Uh, any brand manager can log in and see. How did you get, you know, Saracen from this point of doing being traditional media planners to so now you're, you know, doing influencer marketing and and is influencer marketing really something we should be investing in um, seriously or is this a fad that's going to go away, you know, in a few years time? Right. To answer your last question first, it is only going to get stronger. Influencer marketing is only going to get stronger because we've seen like if you look at from all research, trust levels, the highest trust level is from another person. Yeah. If somebody else recommends something to you, yeah, you trust it a lot more than if it was a brand itself trying to sell to you. Or even worse, if it's something like the government trying to sell something to you. True. That actually has, I think, the lowest trust levels. So influencer marketing is here to stay. Yeah. And we looked at that and we thought this is, a, is an industry that is quite chaotic right now. A lot of people are using influencers based on their own personal experience. They say, I know this person. Right. <laughs> or oh, I know so-and-so, or I see so-and-so on TV, or I hear them on radio. Yeah. So these are the influencers we're going to select. Yet there are so many other people out there who are delivering some great content, even not being paid for it. Yeah. And so we looked around and thought, how do we bring order to this particular sector, and especially to be able to deliver value to our clients? And that's when we did a, a search, and we landed upon that platform called Tagger. Yeah. And we held negotiations with Tagger, and now we are the agency for Tiger for all of Sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. And yeah. that's T-A-G-G-E-R. Yes, yeah. correct. Fantastic tool. I think one of the key things that really you know got me thinking about influencer marketing, so last year around this time between July and October, if you remember, we had, Diageo had a pause on social media marketing uh, with the key platforms. Remember the U.S. elections were coming. And I think it was us and P&G and Coca-Cola. We decided to pause paid advertising on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This was around the time we are getting ready to launch Gordon's Gin. And we had great media plans that included a lot of social media, paid social media. And suddenly they were on hold. And I remember going back to your team and saying, guys, we can't even execute this. (laughs) Um, And again, came back again. And I think we collaborated and said, let's work with influencers. So, you know, take that same budget and say, go to content creators and say, help us launch this brand. And we literally launched Gordon's Pink with working with content creators. Now, the key thing there is, um, you know, the content creators we worked with were very disciplined. Um, they did put a lot of time and effort in creating cocktails, you know, really beautiful cocktails and what have you, and just showing the lifestyle around Gordon's Gin. And the campaign was such a success. I think in the first two or three months, we had already surpassed our sales by 258%. Mm-hmm. And that campaign actually went on to win the best digital campaign at the Marketing Society of Kenya in 2020. And it was so ironic because the best digital campaign was an influencer marketing-led campaign, and yet mm-hmm. it won the award. So I think that was what just 
turned it around for me and said, this is, there's something here. And the fact that also we're giving content creators who are local young creatives an opportunity, you know, to make some money. I think which is something I'm very passionate about, you know, empowering the next generation of, of marketers and creators. So for me, that was one that stood out. I also wanted to talk about measuring return on investment for marketing, which I think is something that's been also neglected in this market. And I'm really happy to see what Diageo is doing. And this has been recognized globally with the Catalyst platform. Yes. Where you're actually able to not really drill down and see what mediums are working, yes. what they're delivering in terms of return on investment. Yeah. That is something that I that is a passion of mine, but I see it sorely lacking in this market. Yeah. Again, goes back to that lack of respect for data. Right. And that is something that the marketing community in Kenya should really change and start really asking questions about how do we measure our return on investment. Yeah, I agree with you. So we, you know, that's all around marketing effectiveness. So we uh, we have a tool called Marketing Catalyst in Diageo that we rolled out in Kenya s- uh, some years ago and we rolled it out in Uganda and rolling out in Tanzania. And like you said, it collects data. So it calls obviously collects sales data, but also looks at it against um, the activities you are running, um, marketing activities you are running, and w- what was your channel, your media channel choice. And it comes back and shows you, and, and obviously over time it gets better. So now it's so precise because we've been using it for over three years, um, shows us where we actually get the best uh, return on ROI. And we're able to actually make decisions as you know, uh, and that is why you saw, I think we've seen, we've shifted a lot of our media into uh, paid social that gives a really high ROI and out of home that also gives a high ROI for our, and this is just for our portfolio, for our category that we're in and for the market that we're in. It also helps us with things like looking at seasonality and phasing. Amazing, like you said, a tool that just takes data and helps us with ROI. Yeah. So Lenny, thank you so much for having you. You are legendary, like I said earlier. I won't call you grandfather. The le- the media legend um, of Kenya, of East Africa, of Africa globally. Uh, you know, you work with or you've partnered with, you know, global a global partner. We're so proud um, to have you as our agency. I know we've been doing a lot of good work together in the last one year, and really just happy to hear your thoughts on on media. I hope. You know, it's, it's helped somebody who's thinking about going into this field. All right. Thank you very much, Waidera, and kudos on starting this. I think it's a great initiative. Thank you so much.